and welcome to the History Obscura Reading Room. As always, I am your host, Mandy Gardner. Well, I do hope your stomachs are properly prepared for tonight's tale. It gets a little... icky. Consider yourself warned. Still here, I see. Oh, excellent. It would be a shame to miss out, ickiness aside. <clears throat> it was 1547 when German explorer Hans Staden decided to see India and was instead completely sidetracked on an adventure in Brazil. To my absolute delight, he chose to disclose the entire journey in a book entitled Hans Staden's True Story, an account of cannibal captivity in Brazil. Please, allow me to share a few select passages from that manuscript. Once upon a time, I, Hans Staden of Homburg in Hesse, decided to go and see India, if God so pleased. With this intent, I traveled from Bremen to Holland. At Campen, I found ships that wanted to load salt in Portugal. I then embarked, and on the 29th of April in the year 1547, we arrived at a town called St. Tuva. It took us four weeks at sea to get there. And from there, I reached Lisbon, which lies five miles from St. Tuval. At Lisbon, I lodged at an inn owned by a man who was called the Young Lure and was a German. I stayed with him for some time. I told my host that I had left my fatherland and asked when I could sail for India. He said that I had stayed on too long. The king's ships bound for India had already departed. Having missed out on this travel, I asked him to help me find another, since he knew the language. In return, I said, I would owe him a favor. He got me a position on a ship as an arquebusier. The captain of the ship was named Pintiado and wanted to travel to Belize to trade. He also had permission to attack the ships that were trading with the white moors in Barbary. If he met French ships at Brazil trading with the savages, he had leave to seize and collect them as a prize. He also had to transport several prisoners to this land who deserved punishment but had been spared with the object of using them to settle the new lands. Our ship was well equipped with all armaments needed at sea. We were three Germans on board, one called Hans von Bruckhausen, another named Heinrich Brandt of Bremen, and I. Then one day, on the 18th of November, when the navigator took measure of the sun's height and found that we were at 28 degrees south, we began to seek land towards the west. Later, on the 24th of that same month, we sighted land. We had been six months at sea and had often been in great danger, 
As we drew closer to land, we could neither discern the markings nor the harbor to which the chief navigator had directed us. Since we could not risk entering an unknown harbor, we tacked along the coast. A great wind began to blow, and at every moment we expected to be dashed to pieces on the rocks. We bound empty casks together, filled them with powder, and stopped up the bungholes, tying our weapons to them so that if we were shipwrecked and any of the people on board survived, they would find their weapons on land, for the waves would carry the barrels ashore. We tacked and tried to draw away from the land, but in vain. The wind pushed us to the rocks, which lay hidden some four fathoms beneath the water. We had to sail towards the shore because of the great waves, and were certain that we were going to die. But God wills it otherwise, so that when we were right next to the rocks, one of our men spotted a harbor. There we entered. In this place we saw a small ship. It fled before us and sailed behind an island so that we could not see it and find out what manner of ship it was. However, we did not follow. Instead, we cast anchor and praised God for having saved us from this misery. We rested and dried our clothes. When we cast anchor, it was probably about two hours after noon. Towards evening, a big canoe filled with savages arrived by the ship. They wanted to talk with us, but none of us could understand that language properly. We gave them several knives and fishing hooks, and they departed. At night, a second big canoe full of savages came out, bringing with them two Portuguese, who asked us where we came from. We then told them that we were from Spain. They then thought that we must have had a skilled navigator on board in order to make the harbor, for although they knew the harbor well, they would not have known how to enter it in such a storm as we. They told us that the harbor we were in was called Supraway, and that we were some 18 miles from the island called Saint Vincente, which belongs to the King of Portugal. Now, friends, Following several adventures here, Hans Staden was taken prisoner by the Brazilian Tupinamba tribe, who considered him and the Portuguese their enemies. The Tupinamba told Hans that they planned to cook and eat him, as was their custom with such enemies. Hans's manuscript continues. Some days later, however, they wanted to eat a captive in a village called Tiquari, about six miles away from where I was kept captive. Thus, several persons from the huts where I was set out, taking me along with them. The slave whom they wanted to eat belonged to a nation called Markaya, and we traveled there in a canoe. When they are about to eat a human, it is their custom to make a drink from roots called kawi, and after they have drunk this, they kill him. Now when this moment came, I went up to the captive. It was on the eve of the day on which they were going to drink in preparation for his death. 
And I said to him, So, you are ready for your death? He laughed and said yes. He thought that he was well prepared, except that his binding ropes were too short. He said his own people had better ropes. And he spoke and acted as if he were going to the parish fair. Now I had a book in the Portuguese language with me, which the savages had taken from a ship they had captured with the help of the French. They gave this book to me. I left the captive, read in the book, and was consumed with pity for him. Then I returned to him and talked and said, I am also a captive just like you, and I have not come to eat you. On the contrary, my masters have brought me along. Then he said he well knew that our people did not eat human flesh. I further told him to be comforted, for they would only eat his body. His soul, however, would travel to another place, where the souls of our people also travel, and there is much joy. Then he asked whether this was true. I told him yes. Well, he said, he had never seen God. I told him that he would see him in the other life. Having now finished the conversation, I left him. On the night of the day that I had talked with him, a high wind arrived and blew so terribly that it blew off parts of the roofs on the huts. Then the savages began to grow angry with me and said in their language, Apo miaren giaupawi witu wasu amu. That meant, the evil man, the saint, has made the wind come here, for during the day he looked into his hides of thunder. By this they meant my book. They said that I was doing this because the slave was a friend of the Portuguese, and perhaps I wanted to prevent the feast through bad weather. I prayed to God, the Lord, for they were very angry with me. I said, Lord, you have protected me until now. Keep protecting me. When day broke, it was fine weather, and they drank and were very content. Then I went to the slave and told him that the great wind had been God, who had wanted to take him. Then he was eaten on the following day. How this takes place, you will find described in the last chapters. Well, friends, let's skip ahead, shall we? Yes. Here it is, Part 3, Chapter 29. The Ceremonies at Which They Kill and Eat Their Enemies. <clears throat> when they bring home their enemies, these are first beaten by the women and the children. They then decorate him with gray feathers shave off the eyebrows above his eyes, and dance around him, binding him tight so that he cannot escape. They give him a woman who attends to him and is also doing things with him. If she becomes pregnant, they raise the child until it is grown. If it then enters their minds to do so, they kill and eat the child. They feed the captive well, and keep him for some time while they make preparations. 
they make many vessels, which they use to make drinks in, and they fire special pots, where they prepare the things with which they paint the captive. They make tassels, which they tie to the club with which he is to be killed, and they also make a long cord called Musarana to bind him when he is going to die. When they have made all these things ready, they then decide when he is going to die and invite the savages from the other villages, so that they may come there at the given time. A couple of days in advance, they then fill all the vessels with drinks. Before the women make the drink, they lead the captive once or twice to the open place between the huts and dance around him. When all those guests who come from outside have now gathered together, the chief of the hut bids them welcome. Now come and eat your enemy. The day before they begin to drink, they tie the cord Musarana about the captive's neck. On this day, they also paint the club called Aiwira Peme, with which they want to kill him. It is more than a fathom long. They first cover it with sticky stuff. Then they take the eggshells of a bird called Makukawa, which they grind to a powder and spread upon the club. Then a woman sits down and scratches in the eggshell powder. While she is painting, a lot of women surround her and sing. When the Aiwira Peme is as it is supposed to be, with tassels and other things, they hang it upon a pole in an empty hut, and then gather around it and sing all night. They paint the face of the captive in the same manner. The women are also singing while one of them is painting him. And when they begin to drink, they take their captive along and chat with him, while he drinks as well. When the drinking has now come to an end, they rest the next day and build a small hut for the captive, on the place where he is going to die. There, he spends the night under close guard. Then, towards the morning, sometime before dawn, they come and dance and sing around the club, with which they wish to slay him until daybreaks. They then take the captive away from his small hut, which they tear down and clear away. They remove the Musarana from his neck, tie it around his body, and draw it tight on both sides. He is standing tied in the middle, on both ends, many of them holding on to the cord. They let him stand like this for a while, and place small stones next to him so that he can throw them at these women who run about him and threaten to eat him. When this mocking and dancing has now come to an end, they make a fire about two paces away from the slave. He has to look upon the fire. After this, a woman comes running with the club Iwirapeme. In order to make him see it, she waves the tassels in the air, shrieks with joy, and runs past the captive. After this has happened, a man now takes the club, goes to stand in front of the captive, 
and holds the club in front of him so that he will look at it. Meanwhile, the one who is going to slay him goes forth with thirteen or fourteen others, and they all paint their bodies grey with ashes. Then the executioner and his henchmen come to the place where the captive is, and the other person gives him the club. The king of the hut comes and takes the club and thrusts it once between the legs of the person who's going to slay the captive. This is a great honor among them. The one who is going to kill him takes back the club and says, Well, here I am. I will kill you, since your friends have also taken and eaten many of my friends. He answers, When I am dead, I will still have many friends, who are certainly going to avenge me. The executioner then strikes him on the back of his head, and beats out his brains. The women immediately seize him and put him over the fire, where they scrape off all of his skin, making him all white. They place a piece of wood in his arse to prevent a discharge. When he has been skinned, a man takes him and cuts off the legs above the knees and the arms at the body. Then four women come and seize the first four pieces and run around the huts with them, screaming loudly with joy. After this, they part the back, including the buttocks, from the front part and divide this amongst themselves. However, the women keep the innards, simmer them, and make a type of mush called mingao in the broth. They and the children drink this and eat the innards. They also eat the flesh from the head, the brain, the tongue, and whatever else is edible is eaten by the youngsters. When this is all done, everyone returns home and each of them brings a piece along. The one who has killed this captive gives himself a new name. The king of the hut scratches him on the upper arm with the tooth of a wild animal. When this wound has healed properly, you can see the scar. This is a sign of honor for this act. He then has to lie all day in a hammock but they give him a small bow and arrow so that he can pass the time by shooting into a target made of wax. This is done to prevent his arms from becoming feeble from the shock of the slaying. I was present, and I have seen all of this. In 1555, after becoming a valued translator and go-between for his captors, Hans Staden finally managed to make his escape back to Europe. But not before being gleefully fed a certain specialty soup by the Tupinamba that Hans found particularly delicious. He also found multiple skulls at the bottom of the pot that had lately belonged to a group of young boys. 
Hans Staden died in 1579 in Europe, having never been cooked and eaten by his enemies. I assume he considered this a great success. Of course, no one ever asked how the Tupinamba felt about it. Is there a word in German for angry-hungry? That's all for now, friends. Good night. Thank you.